What if dancing could control your world, and your world was a floating island, and you had just escaped from a legalistic order that had ruled the island? This premise may sound familiar, because we actually visited this world in one of our first Fantastical Truth episodes about the fantasy novel Hidden Current. This time, author Sharon Hink herself joins us to explore grace and true heroism versus legalism and false leadership in her recently concluded fantasy trilogy, The Dancing Realms series. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond and apply their meanings to the real world that our author Jesus Christ calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, lorehaven.com's publisher and also the co-author of a non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I am from a family of dancers but I myself am not a dancer, much to the chagrin of my wife, who says I'm a good lead whenever we do some you know, ballroom dancing or something. But uh, this is episode 66. What if you had escaped your floating island, but returned to face rebellion? And we'll be talking about Windward Shore with Sharon Hink, who will join us in just a moment. Starting this summer, we're talking with many more fantastic Christian authors of these amazing stories. Uh, Recently, we've had a lot of episodes that have been very theme-focused, but now, especially for the summer, uh, we're going to help get you started with your summer reading by reaching out to these fantastic creators of fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. Find in the show notes, by the way, that link to one of our earliest episodes about uh, Hidden Current, the first book of this series. But now, it's been a little while, and uh, Sharon has uh, her new book out. About the further adventures of these people who live on these floating islands, and you'll hear more about that in just a bit. Uh, beware, we are exploring the whole trilogy today, which includes some light spoilers. Uh, we've tried to minimize those as much as possible. Uh, Sharon mentions uh, we uh, often find that many readers want to wait until a whole series is concluded before they read it, so we're going to try to respect the needs of our readers here. Uh, Speaking of reading, uh, last week on Lorehaven, uh, we have had several different articles I want to go over real quick. You can subscribe free at lorehaven.com, get articles every week, the new podcast episodes every Tuesday, and the new reviews every Friday. Tuesday, our last Fantastical Truth episode uh, was about why Christian homeschool families love fantastic fiction. Fascinating exploration of my recent experiences with the Realmakers Bookstore at a homeschool conference in Orlando, Florida. Then we had an article which has been hugely popular by uh, Josiah DeGraff called Flagging the Cheap Grace of Marvel's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, Marvel fans and non-Marvel fans alike may appreciate uh, some of the the subversion of a notion that you get in some stories where uh, you can be a bad guy or an anti-hero, but maybe if you do one good thing, then we're all supposed to like you now. Uh, He compares that with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cautions Against Cheap Grace and approaches it from the perfect uh, fan perspective and biblical perspective. We also got uh, on Friday, (laughs) or was it Thursday? It was Thursday. The news that New Line Cinema had announced a new Lord of the Rings film. Now, it's not The Hobbit. It's not The Silmarillion. But it is a film based on the story of Helm Hammerhand, about whom Helm's Deep was named. It looks like a very interesting project, but of course could go so right or so wrong. And then on Friday, we had a sponsored review of uh, Seed Judgment, a supernatural thriller by Joshua David. Uh, Next week, uh, Zach, you're actually up. We got the next article coming out from you, as well as uh, potentially articles from our regular writers, uh, Shannon Stewart and author Emily Hayes. 
Well, I'm so excited today, Stephen, to be joined by Sharon Hink. I first met her three years ago at the Rollmakers Conference, my first time to go there, and I think it might have been her first time to go. But uh, you know, to you, our listener, don't worry that this is going to become a discussion about writing craft and all the ins and outs of you know how to write a book. This is very much a discussion about the themes in these books and how they relate to all of us. There's some really great topics in these books. My my wife and two oldest daughters have loved this trilogy, and so I've gotten to hear a lot about it from them, and uh, it'll be fascinating to talk through some of these ideas with Sharon. Let's go into that interview now. Award-winning author Sharon Hink writes stories for the hero in all of us, stories about ordinary women on extraordinary faith journeys. Known for their authenticity, emotional range, and spiritual depth, her novels include the groundbreaking The Sword of Lyric fantasy series and the imaginative new The Dancing Realm series, which began with the Christie Award-winning Hidden Current and was followed by Forsaken Island. Sharon's writing has also been honored with three Carol Awards. For this latest series, she drew on her experience as a ballet teacher, dancer, and choreographer. And we have the back cover summary for book three of the Dancing Realm series called Windward Shore, which says, quote, the island world of Miriel faces an old adversary and a new danger. Will the reformed order die before it has a chance to blossom? Storm clouds loom on the horizon as Karya and Brantley struggle to overcome wounds of the past and build a future together. The fragile new order is on shaky ground, with too few dancers and sparse resources. Then trouble erupts, and now an insidious rebellion and a new foe threaten their entire world. When she uncovers an old enemy behind all the destruction, Karya realizes the past is not done with her. With conflict tearing apart the dancers and villages, rumors are soon overrun, and Karya must unite her people by leading the battle to protect the very heart of her world or lose it all. In quote, you can get that full description and more about the Dancing Realm series at lorehaven.com library. We will, of course, include those links in the show notes. But for now, let's explore the Dancing Realms with Sharon Hink. Sharon, it's so great to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us to explore these fantastic island worlds. It's great to be here. I appreciate it so much. It's very fun for me to go back. It's been years long process writing all three books. And so I actually, I'll let you in on a secret. One of my readers who's a big fan of, of the series um, and super brilliant, I texted her and said, could you write a little summary of each book for me to remind me of what happens in the books and who the main characters are. And she did that for me. So I have that in front of me in case I totally blank out on who different people are and what actually <laughs> happened in the books. Well, it's been a rough season of life for everyone. And that in turn seems to echo a lot of the themes you explore, uh, starting in book one, Hidden Current, which introduces readers to a young woman named Kalara. Uh, as we learn later, of course, uh, some spoilers, of course, throughout, that is not her real name. Uh, she is forced to leave the legalistic order uh, that has trained her in these magical dancing forms, which the dancers use to help steer their world, this floating island on which they live. The order is actually located at the heart of the island, but she eventually discovers that there is a dark secret, many dark secrets behind the abuses going on in this organization. They're abusing this gift from the maker to control their world on their own terms. Which, of course, brings to mind some real-world parallels. And I'm just curious, how do you interpret these fantastical elements, uh, the dance-based magic and its abuse and abuse, in terms of uh, the meanings that we find in the real world and your own history with some similar factions uh, going on in reality? 
Good questions. I really love what if questions. So as I was playing with, you know, I'm always inspired from scripture and there was that verse about finding the law after it had been lost. And the sadness of this culture that had been so close, you know, God's chosen people and had forgotten him. And I thought, what if a world totally had forgotten that there was a maker? What would that look like? And I always write with themes that are on a macro level and a micro level. So on a macro level, we're looking at our culture that in many ways has forgotten that there's a maker or believes that man is God. But then on a micro level, it challenged me to look at my own heart and in what ways do I rely on my own efforts rather than trusting in God's. So I'm hoping that when readers come to it, there's that sense of, ooh, this which science fiction and fantasy do so well. Like, oh, this kind of reminds me of this issue in our culture right now. But beyond that, I hope people can can engage with the story and say, oh, I do that sometimes. I rely on my own strength or I take comfort in controlling everything around me. So that way the story is, it's entertaining, I hope, and it's exciting and fun and but also leaves you mulling questions about life and about meaning. When I looked at what if there's no maker, my first thought was, well, then there's total freedom. And yet, as I conceived of Marielle and the order, I realized, no, instead of freedom, there's a harsher legalism because now it's all dependent on man setting rules to control everything in his world. And it becomes man as God. And whenever we're relying on ourselves, we either skew toward despair because we fail or we skew toward pride because we think we're doing it well. And that led me to thinking about cults, which are very, very controlling and people who get pulled into them. So I did a lot of research on cults because the order is very much like a secular cult. And then I also, (laughs) this will sound a little weird and no offense to motivational speakers, but it a little bit reminded me of the sort of motivational speakers that overinflate our mind's ability to create reality. That's right. Mind over matter. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's very much the heart of the order is like we create our reality. We steer our world. We make things happen the way we want them to be. And then as I was exploring that, and I purposely did this as a secular legalism, But of course, it made me think about religious legalism, which, you know, Stephen, you and I have had conversations about past experiences with certain wings of the Christian community that have skewed that way. And I was really eager to jump into that because, you know, if I'm going to be following Christ, I want to be the best follower of Christ. So let's heap on some extra rules. And what I learned is that religious legalism is all fear-based instead of love-based. And God's relationship with us is love-based. So that's kind of what I began to set out to explore. And then, of course, the the one character, Karya, who is called by the maker to find the lost letter that he wrote to his people, to remind them that the maker exists, and then to challenge them in kind of a Elijah-like imagery. So I, I draw a lot from biblical imagery. People who aren't familiar with scripture can still enjoy the books, and hopefully the imagery is vibrant to them. And then people who are very familiar with scriptural stories will point to things, you know, walking on water or a challenge, uh, 
your mental power versus the maker's power. You know, the, all those kinds of symbols that show up that are very drawn from scripture. But if you're if you have no familiarity with scriptural stories, I think the themes should still resonate because that's something that we all struggle with. Yeah, well, you're so right in that legalism can show up in the presence of religion or the absence of it because it is a problem of the human heart. And more and more in society, we are seeing different variations of secular legalism or political legalism. And so I, I think your book touches on a very important issue right now in that it is very easy to get sucked into some kind of cult, like an ideological cult, maybe not an actual like compound sort of cult like we had here in Texas when I was growing up at the near the, the Branch Davidian cult that everyone's probably heard of. But you know, cults can take a lot of forms and, and cult thinking even more broadly can involve a lot of things that are, that can go across different lines. But, um, you know, a, a word that keeps coming to mind, Sharon, for me is the word perfectionism. Mm. So, um, so my, my wife and, and, uh, oldest two daughters have read these books. They love these books. And, you know, we talk a lot about perfectionism in our family because my kids come by it honestly. And, uh, and I don't mean by my wife, who, even though she was a valedictorian, she's, I wouldn't call her a perfectionist. They get it from me. Like, I, I don't know what I, I could blame it on, but I, it, I'll just blame it on myself. Like, I, I, it's definitely been a lifelong struggle. So I'd, I'd like to hear from you. Like, how, did the, how does the theme of perfectionism come out of this book? And, and just kind of what are your thoughts about that overall? Oh, that's, that's an awesome question because the idea of using dance was very scary for me. And, and I'll tell you why. I, I was a dancer and a choreographer and have a passion for it. And when my agent said, for your next series, you know, you've never really delved into your vast experience as a dancer. Why don't you pull that into a story? And I said, I'm scared to because all I'll do is talk about dance because I love it so much. And, and readers will get turned off and it will be boring to them because that's my hobby horse. And I will just go on and on and on. But as I thought about the possibilities in this world, ballet in particular, but really any form of dance, really fosters perfectionism and this pursuit of a perfection you can never attain, which ties in really well to the whole spiritual struggle of us trying to reach God in our own power. And we need to face the facts that we can't save ourselves. We need a savior. We need the maker to step into our story and intervene because we can't do it. I think that dance and it is such a great art form. Well, a lot of the arts really grapple with that idea of perfection and striving for it. And so it was a good metaphor to use in this book. It's also a great metaphor to help head off the Christian suspicion I've seen often, actually, that reduces legalism to an appearance-based judgment. Oh, that person is wearing X. She must be a legalist. Oh, that person is avoiding these movies. He must be a legalist. But as we know, legalism is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of motivation. Are you doing things based out of fear or a desire to control others? Or are you doing things based out of love for Christ our Savior? Most legalists, I would say, at least in uh, Western cultures, the idea is that, oh, legalists don't like dance. No drinking, no dancing, no playing cards, no going, going to the theater, that sort of thing. But here you have the order, which uses dance and seems to like dance, but uses the gift of dance itself, an artistic expression, which comes from God. It's a gift of God, gift of the maker. But they've taken that gift and they've used that as a means of control. 
which is a big idea that we have at Lorheon and Fantastical Truth is, is that whether you're talking about fictional magic or a real world gift of God, it matters how you use that gift. Are you using that according to his will, motivated by a desire to be happy in him, to please God, to be like Jesus? Or are you using this fictional or real gift to control your world, to manipulate others as a means of, frankly, witchcraft? Because dance-based magic or anything in the real world can turn into something like idolatrous witchcraft if you're mm -hmm. using it to control your world or control others. And that's why I really appreciated Hidden Current is because that message is there uh, in a way that will quietly challenge people. I felt challenged even though I'm already you know, saying amen. This is not what you would call a preachy book, but it is a meaningful book. You used the word resonance earlier. And I love books like this with themes that resonate with me that aren't just about, oh, you need to know that there's a God and he loves you. You know, that, that feels preachy to me. This is going a little bit deeper. I appreciate that. And I, I grapple with, I call it the problem of God, because when God shows up, you lose the typical novel framework, the typical plot structure. He steps in and throws everything into chaos. And yet I have invited him into all my novels in various degrees. Well, he would be there anyway, but I, I consciously say, what is he up to and what is he doing? And the other thing that's important to me to help avoid that feeling of being preached to in a story is I'm being challenged too. I'm grappling with these questions. I'm looking at my own heart and life and wow, what seasons of life did I embrace something like the order instead of having the courage to throw myself into the arms of a maker who loves me? How much am I relying on my own pursuit of perfection or my own whatever? And I think as long as a, a novelist is grappling with questions, they're raising questions, inviting the reader along to look at these issues and, and think about them and watch the characters in action. And it's not, I, I didn't start out with, I am going to tell the world that this is how it should be and not, and this is not how it should be and they're wrong and I'm right. Not at all. I had, I started out with questions. I start with what if questions and then look at how, what I see around me in the world, what I see in my own life and my own past. And then I set those characters loose and see what happens. Well, and what I hear you saying there is that you were challenging yourself and, and the reader to think, not just how am I like the hero in the story, but how am I, how or how can I be like the villain? Like, how yes. can I be yes. like the order? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it was Tim Keller who said a, a lot, you know, the temptation is to look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and say, ha, I think you got it. I'm not like the Pharisee. You know, and and that is like that is easily a trap we can fall into and say, well, those Pharisees had no idea what they were talking about. Like, I'm so glad I'm not a Pharisee. And we, we can kind of forget where even the Pharisees ideas come from and what the, there was some good that they were trying to do. Right. And, and they, right. they went about it the wrong way. And and there was reasons behind some of their choices that we might mock when we you know dig into the New Testament and say, oh, how did they get it so wrong? And they didn't understand and they confronted Jesus and they did it all wrong. Well, they had created all those rules and laws because they had a history of having rebelled against God and then suffering for it. So when they established a new society, when they finally could come back to Jerusalem, when they could finally reestablish the kingdom of Israel, 
they wanted to be sure not to make those same mistakes. So they layered on, instead of trusting God and following the key commandments he gave them, they layered on more and more and more as kind of a safety bubble around them. And it became ridiculous. But yes, we as humans do that. And so to understand, and my oldest son is a pastor, and he talks to me often about how we as Christians want to be David in the David and Goliath story. We want to be Peter walking on water, but we don't want to be, and as you said, the Pharisee in the publican and Pharisee prayer story. We want to, you know, we always want to identify with the good guy, but sometimes we got to look at the person who's being shown up as having some wrong thinking and examine our own hearts. And Amen. we all do it. We, we all do it. Even a Pharisee can have a tragic backstory. Doesn't mean you should become <laughs> yes. like a Pharisee, but no, but, but it we, helps you have do. compassion of where yes. they're coming from, of what what led them to that point. And that's as a novelist, it's so important that your villains have a reason for what they're doing because in their own mind, they're the hero of their story. They're the hero, exactly. Well, that's the that's the hero complex into which every human being, apart from Christ, is born until we are redeemed by Christ and we realize that He is the hero of this grand narrative. Uh, we are merely the supporting cast. Uh, I do like the idea of the, the Pharisee having a tragic backstory and that does help with the empathy, <laughs> which should be the point of a story with deep resonant themes like this is not to make you into the type of person, a Pharisee yourself who would lord your sp superiority over other Pharisees, but to empathize. And, and then mm -hmm. to take that empathy, of course, you know, it doesn't mean that you do not stand for truth or do not stand for the word of God. But you can still do so in a way that is genuinely empathetic, uh, not just surrendering to other folks. I was reading an article uh, earlier this morning, actually, it was by, uh, I do not know the writer, uh, but the main theme of the article was, you know, watch out for tattooed Pharisees. The idea being that some traditionalist legalists uh, are all about trying to hold on to the past of the church as they see it. But the new variety of Phariseeism now is about trying to hold on to the future of the church as they see it. So now, as Zach mentioned, there's a whole other slew of rules and words you're supposed to say and not say and concepts you should adopt uh, for the sake of your public witness, uh, for the sake of the future of the church. Like, well, some of those may or may not be good ideas, but they can quickly become Phariseeism. And that's, uh, that, that is, that's a big theme here that I really appreciated. And I do see that it, it continues as, uh, as our, our cast of characters uh, in book two, Forsaken Island. Kalara, of course, as you mentioned, uh, recovers her name. Uh, she's now known as Karya. And her friend Brantley uh, finally discover their island is not the only one in this uh, world of floating islands. Little Paralandra inspiration there. Yes, for all you uh, Ransom <laughs> yep, Trilogy yep. fans. I just just mm, finished yep. Paralandra. Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. Oh, I'll have to ask you about that offline. One of that my offline. favorite, favorite I all time. I love Paralandra. The, uh, the Ransom Unmanned conversations, especially with the Green Lady, are my favorite. Uh, no green people here, though, when they leave their island for the first time, <laughs> and they're soon lost in another island uh, with a very different sort of situation. Uh, they haven't had a, a centralized order to establish a uh, organization and manipulation over things but uh it's more like these different tribes different groups scattered about the island who are all practicing different forms of cultural creativity uh, but they forget their own purposes literally they just sort of experience a kind of reoccurring amnesia problem and you discover there's a very different sort of villain here uh, what ideas helped you to create uh, this uh, this sequel sharon i did some thinking about what we humans obsess about and if i 
were writing a 10 book series, I would have had fun creating village after village after village, but I, I decided to do three representative, I think it was three representative villages where the first one really celebrates the creative arts and the people there just create such beauty that at first Karya is enthralled and she wants to learn their dances and she appreciates all their artistry and beauty in everything, fabrics and sculpture and music. But um, as the story progresses, you learn that to worship or be completely obsessed with even a good gift like the arts can lead you into some bad places. And the people of the Forsaken Island have literally sold their soul, in a sense, um, to enable them to have nothing but their idol. Now, the, the, that first village, a little bit of spoilers, but not too much. Um, the first voyage, village is the creative arts. The, the next one that they encounter is really into athletic prowess and battles. And, and I, I, I'm not a huge sports fan, so I'm always kind of, except for the Olympics, then I get really <laughs> obsessed. But I'm always kind of baffled by the people that are just rabid football fans or rabid baseball fans, and they're so into it. And so I kind of explored, okay, what, what, where can this obsession lead? Can it take people away from family? Can it take them away from God, from their, you know, can it, can it consume all their time and all their interest? And, and then another village is very obsessed with technology. And that was fun because... Oh, now you're meddling. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm stepping on your toes now. <laughs> Geeks, look out! But <laughs> but I'm I'm addressing it to myself too because I'm like really into video games and it's like an episode of Star Trek: Next Generation where they had that game that would like oh, ping yes. in their brains and everybody with Ashley Judd. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's and right. they would just keep uh-huh, they would just keep playing it all the time and more and more just to get up to the next level. All of the game looked kind of dumb. Yeah, <laughs> you know where they would just like mentally pop something into the little whirlpool. But anyway, so. I thought about technology and how it's taken over our lives, social media. And I mean, this is, it's not a new, fresh theme. People have been discussing this for years, but it was fun to explore it on a different world with a different type of technology. And then to watch how that technology actually wasn't solving the problems it was designed to solve. That was really fun to play with because I remember reading a study that when washing machines were invented, that was supposed to save people so much time. And actually people spend more time caring for their laundry than they used to because in the olden days, I'm not that old, but almost, um, if you didn't have a washing machine, you would wear the same clothes quite a bit before you would wash it and maybe have two outfits and alternate them. Now, because of the washing machine, we're expected that you're gonna change clothes every day, you're gonna do a load of wash every couple days, you're constantly doing laundry, and so the problem it was meant to solve, it didn't exactly solve. So I played with that concept with some of the weird inventions that they were using, the communication tools that really didn't aid communication, but they had convinced themselves we need, just, just as I find social media often becomes a barrier to communication instead of actually yes. enhancing it. So I played with those ideas with that village. but. All of the people there and other villages that I mentioned, but I didn't actually, my characters didn't get to go visit. But all of it was 
we have this thing and this thing identifies who we are. This is our identity and we will do anything for it. And sometimes it gets too uncomfortable. So we need to numb out. And then the bad guy is there to be happily numb people out and steals quite a bit away from them in exchange. I think I can say that much without too many spoilers. Yeah, we're trying to go a little bit light on the spoilers. Yeah, but some some of them will be inevitable, I think, just a little bit. Well, I, I can definitely relate to, you know, not being a sports ball fan. I, uh, I, I The one exception is is my college uh, football team, the Texas Aggies, whenever they play. But uh, even this year, I barely even watched it. And uh, actually, fun, fun, quick side story. At, uh, at my work meeting one day, we had this uh, coworker from China. And she came into us talking about college football. And she's like, you guys are still talking about your football team from college? Like, didn't you already graduate? Like, why would you still be talking about that? Like, that's so childish. I <laughs> totally just, get that. I totally it just, like, get put that. Everything in perspective. We're like, <laughs> you know, we are kind of adults now. Like, why, why do we used to? <laughs> anyway. well, and, and the thing that's important to say is I appreciate my friends who enjoy sports. I mean, it's a wonderful thing they can enjoy it and they appreciate me who's into musical theater and they're like they roll their eyes i have one friend who just loathes musical theater and we can kid each other about it and we have different interests and we have different passions and those are all good things that's that's what was is it was important to me in these villages on this island that their idols were not bad things right these are things that can be good these are you know maker given gifts and um, interests and passions but then they can become corrupted. And again, on a macro level, we can see that in our culture. We can see it in our churches. We can yeah. see different churches warring over what's most important and getting obsessed with the wrong things. And then on a micro level, it challenged me to look at my life and what am I trying to numb out? And what am I willing to, you know, how do I run from communion with the maker? Because sometimes it's just too painful. Because that kind of vibrant relationship isn't always easy. Sharon, I, I so appreciate that, that you aren't just picking at one type of idol or another. You're, you're showing how all the different things that we can enjoy can become idols if we allow them to become too important, if we let, let a good thing become a God thing. Mm. And I, you know, and I joked it like, yeah, once you start talking about the technology idol, oh man, I, I start getting defensive, <laughs> but I, you know, I totally recognize this in myself and, and beyond just like, I, I love, I mean, I've always loved gadgets and I love anything with buttons, but, but more than that, it, it's the desire to fix anything or solve any problem with what I can create. And, you know, it, it's beyond just whether something is electronic, it's whether I think this thing can improve or fix my deepest problems. And I think that really gets to the heart of what you're saying. And yeah, I, I just really appreciate the approach you're taking that you're just kind of gently showing people that, hey, just watch out that, that something that you enjoy doesn't become your identity. Right, right. It's almost a science fiction theme just about because science fiction, at least the good science fiction, will deal with the pros and cons of human creation with particular emphasis on technology. And I enjoy both science fiction and fantasy. So it was, it was fun to see a fantasy world approach to that issue. And I noted again, Sharon, earlier you mentioned that you, know, you found particular challenge in these themes. You know, the fact that you 
don't always need a big, bad legalistic order uh, to corrupt the good gifts of the maker. Uh, people can do that just fine when left to their own devices, quite literally left to their own devices, <laughs> apart from the original creator of the ideas for those devices or the idea of making the devices. Uh, just the fact that you're going along with this journey yourself uh, kind of serves to get rid of the rather increasingly cliched criticism that, oh, Christian-made fiction is so preachy. If, if a story calls things by their proper names or, or names ideas or explores meanings like this, then that equals preachy. I call that itself a corruption of a good gift. I call that accusation often legalism because this is not the author behaving as preacher. If anything, is the author behaving more like pastorally. Uh, a preacher, mm. people think, you know, the, the imagination they have in the back of their head is some dude in a robe on a high pulpit who then disappears to the back and then you never see him until the next Sunday when it's time for his next homily. The pastor, at least the ideal version of that, lives with you. He is in that journey with you. You know, he's he's your bro or he, he's your he's your friend. You you know, you get together for coffee or you're in a text message thread with this person. I would love to see more emphasis on the pastoral discipleship role of Christian-made fiction as an alternative, as the positive version of the accusation of this story is preachy. Well, I do concede, though, there are some Christian-made stories and plenty of other stories that are preachy because the makers of the story are very clearly repeatedly jumping their own sharks uh, and they're insisting on being at the, they're, they're, they're at the top, you know, they're, they're reaching yeah. down to you, the person who hasn't yet learned the lesson and they're trying to help you learn. Well, and this, the story is agenda driven. You're not serving the story. You're serving your right. agenda and, and, and forcing it into the story. And I have read books where I agree with the agenda and it still bothers me that it's an agenda driven story. It doesn't even matter that I totally agree with the premise and the, the point of view that the author has, it's not honoring the art form of the novel because a novel is not a lecture. <laughs> and, and so I work hard to humbly explore questions that I'm grappling with and invite the reader along. And sometimes that's going to pinch depending on what what I, what toes I step on, <laughs> for example, technology. <laughs> <laughs> what what I keep hearing you talk about is like your characters and just what they're going through, and like you've you you paid such a close attention to really fleshing out real, you know, characters that that instead of caricatures. Mm, I and hope that, so. That's what really that's to me what I I feel like is the dividing line between uh, a story and agenda is whether or not this seems like a real person going through this or whether, you know, this is just a stand in for a person I don't like. And, and as you said, yes, I can think of a book right now. I'm not going to name it, but I can think of a book right now where I agreed a hundred percent politically with the author, but I just, I really did not care for how he sort of painted everything and, and just uh, all the characters basically sounded the same. They had no personality. They, they were just like little sock puppets. And, Back to earlier when we were talking about villains and being able to empathize with the you know the Pharisees or or the or the villains in the story, I've been in some discussions with people where they say, well, we shouldn't empathize with villains. And actually, this is a big conversation right now because of the Cruella Deville prequel tragic backstory that came out. Like, I agree with the concern that we shouldn't empathize so much with villains that we excuse their villainy. 
But I don't think that's the point. The point is to embrace humility, right. to say, where do I see the seeds of villainy in myself? Excellent. And when, yes. and when a character sees that for him or herself in a story, and, and it's a real realization for them, it's not just something the narrator's forcing on them. That's where I think the real magic of a story happens because as a reader, you look at that and go, wow, that this feels just like what I've gone through in my own life. And it's not, and it's that self-realization. It's not, you're not simply being told that you're feeling it, you're experiencing it. And so it sounds like that's what you are really trying to go for in this book. Yeah, definitely. The call to empathize with villains or to see that the fact that a Pharisee may have a tragic backstory uh, is itself, I think, a, a biblical theme there. Love your enemies, uh, see yourself in, in their place. But that's what I think helps to make uh, to take a story from being preachy to being a, a more pastoral, uh, to being more of a discipleship tool. Because although we may believe as Christians that that is what we're supposed to do, love our enemies, try to empathize with the villains, like even while practicing justice and you know, self-defense and all of that in a biblical fashion, those themes may be real, but they also create more challenges. And I think that's really the best way that a book, that a story can present that theme as, oh, well, this is the answer. When people say, well, a story shouldn't give the answer. It should just always uh, leave the questions open. I say, no, it might answer itself definitively, but then in book two or the next chapter, you've opened up a whole new field of challenges because the answer itself leads to many, many more questions. And yes. uh, that's that's what yes. I think goes on in book three, Windward Shore, where our heroes uh, return to the island world of Muriel. Uh, but as we've heard in the back cover earlier, the island is not stable. There's some villains that are coming back. The order is on a shaky footing. Sounds to me like kind of a return uh, to some of the themes of book one. I'm, I'm curious if you had this finale in mind all along, and I'm curious how uh, some of the earlier themes, uh, keeping as spoiler-free as possible here, uh, how the okay. earlier themes bear fruit here in, in uh, book three to wrap up the series. Well, a couple of things played into this. I did have in mind the piratey other islands, and I think I can mention those because they show up pretty early in book three. And I, I loved the just the these pirating islands attacking each other back and forth, back and forth, and nobody's getting anywhere and just sniping like crazy. And several readers have said that that really resonates with them in our current you know, cultural climate. And the, there is some things that happen at the end where Karya tries to solve it and others try to solve it. And it takes intervention of somebody bigger than a human to build some bridges. And it was really interesting. I had an early reader write to me and say that that was such a, the, the climax was so vivid to her, but she said, how do I do it? It's not working in my life. I'm trying to be a bridge builder in my life and I can't do it. And I, I'm, I was so happy to hear her grappling with those questions, but I was also thinking that was the point in the story that we can't do it, that we do need the grace of God. We do need his intervention. Just as we need him to reconcile us to himself, we need him to build reconciliation between us and others. And Karya slips into a little self-reliance, which was trained into her the whole growing up of being in the order. So it's understandable that that's still a deep character flaw in her. And I also liked playing with the idea of 
you know, as a Christian, we go through times of trial and we learn something from it, or we go through a time of temptation and we fall and we are forgiven, we repent, we, we commit to change, and then we fall into the same thing again. That's like the most frustrating for me is when I think I've nailed a lesson, I think I've got this addiction or this struggle in my life under control, and then I'm back in it again. And to see the way that God keeps working with us, it's not poof, you're all fixed, and we're still on this planet, and we're still dealing with our sinful nature, and it, and some of the same issues will re-arise. And that's kind of what I look at in the third book. And not only that, but the things that happened in the second book have caused Karya to have a lot of false guilt and shame. She's, she's feeling regret and shame, and that's um, separating her from the potential love and support that's there. And so that was an important theme to me as well. So as the story starts out, and the other fun thing to look at, which it's so contemporary, but it actually worked in this setting. She has a strong commitment to her family. She's now a rimmer. She's living, you know, she and Brantley are in this village and, and she cares for his family and, and yet the order needs her and she's feeling torn. And it just reminded me of being a young mom and working. And when I was at work, I missed my kids and felt guilty that I wasn't a good enough mom. And when I was with my kids, I felt guilty that I wasn't getting work done. And that, that feeling torn with conflicting responsibilities and desires, it was kind of fun to explore that a little bit. Well, there it is again. There it is again. The the idea of, okay, you've, you've learned something, you've grown, you've accepted a, a a new reality about the universe. There's a maker. He gives his gifts. He sets the parameters for them. You're to live your life in absolute happiness in him. But then life does continue. Characters change. Relationships change. You move. You get a new job. You get a new quest. And you have to be challenged all over again. Some people, I think, criticize stories, particularly fantasy, uh, when a character such as, oh, for example, Luke Skywalker, is seen again in a future movie and they go, wait a minute, you just rolled back all of his character development. And I, I can at once see the virtue of that criticism. Uh, I can see that, okay, there's, there's something to be said for, you know, the idea that people do change. You can get better. You mm -hmm. can be a true hero despite your flaws. But at the same time, that criticism to me seems to have its own flaws because people do roll back the lessons that they've already learned. Uh, the superhero right. who learned, you know, in the last season, uh, that he can't do it all on his own. He needs his team back at the lab and the guy in the chair, uh, you know, in, in, in season three, he may need to learn that lesson all over again. Uh, that can get kind of tropey and kind of annoying because people do progress. But at the same time, it's also realistic. Uh, more so, I think, right. when people are faced with new situations that make them face a new, do I really believe this? Am I going to live this out? If so, how? It's not so much, will the hero win in the end? But how will the hero win in the end? Right. And there's, there's some interesting twists that arise and, and some themes of forgiveness and some themes of um, regrets, not just in Karya's character. There's a surprise twist that I won't talk about, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but yeah, there's room to re-explore. And I, I know just as far as a minor character, Salter Kemp is kind of, one of my readers called her the good Salter. She's the less vicious one in the first book. But there's a scene, I believe, in the third book where she 
kind of snaps and lashes out and is really angry at someone and then catches herself and realizes that was her old identity. That's who mm. she was as a salter of the order. But now they're trying to run the order a new way. I also played with kind of imagery of the Reformation. And, you know, even though the order is not a religious order, the order wasn't totally destroyed. It was reformed. And so I play a little bit. I have a Lutheran background. And so it was very fun to kind of look at what happens after that Reformation. And some people push back for the legalism again, and some people go too goofy. And it's painful. It's a struggle. It's growing pains. And so that was kind of fun to to play with in the back of my mind. I don't think most people grab that from the story, but I kind of liked thinking about the Reformation as the change that came to the order and how that affected the whole world. Yeah. Well, and you really got my attention there with talking about forgiveness. It sounds like there's a lot of conflict between the characters in this book and that's, you know, every story's based on conflict, right? But the fact that there is some kind of reconciliation and reformation that happens, you've totally got my attention there because I, I've been thinking a lot lately how uh, as, as you talked earlier about social media, you know, it's it's this scorched earth landscape right now where there there is no room for grace or growth or forgiveness. It it is a zero sum game. Uh, it's people are playing rhetorically. People are playing uh, fighting to the death, and you know that is that is not sustainable. In, in our our culture is not going to be able to survive if that continues. And I've been thinking a lot recently about how this is showing up in the church. You know, so full disclosure, I'm, um, I go to a Southern Baptist church and the SBC has been in the news a lot lately o- over some very sharp divisions that are happening in the church and that are going to be played out this coming week as we record this. But I've been thinking a lot lately about Acts 15 and how Paul and Barnabas had, quote, such a sharp disagreement <laughs> uh, over John Mark that they parted ways. And Paul was like, nope, this guy failed us. He deserted us. He's, he's dead to me. And he's canceled. You know? and, and Barnabas is like, no, let's give the guy another chance. And, you know, and they can't come to an agreement. And it, it occurs to me how both Paul and John Mark are slipping into their old identities in this passage. Mm. That, that Paul is kind of slipping back into the Pharisee role. John Mark is slipping back into whatever he was before he was a Christian, probably you know, some, kind of, some kind of loser. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> But they they were both doing that, and but but we know that's not the end of the story. We know that later on in Acts and in Paul's letters, we see him reconcile both with Barnabas and John Mark, and we see obviously some growth with John Mark because Paul says he he's been he, he says something like he's been useful to me or he's been mm-hmm. faithful to me, and so we see that there's growth. And you know, the Bible is the source of hope for human relationships, for growth, for reconciliation, for redemption. So I love that your story is based on that. I love that your story weaves that in because as Stephen said, this is a biblical value. We, we know very clearly now forgiveness is not a secular value. <laughs> it is very much a biblical value. I'm so thrilled that your story has elements of that in it. Not only is there eventually reconciliation, but God does something good through their parting. Yes. Mm. He gets to spread the word in some different directions using different people. And that, I take such comfort in that when I look at all the different denominations and the Christians who just can't get along and we have to spread out. 
And yes, we want to all get along better, but even when we don't, God's able to use it for good. Even then, his grace pours out through our brokenness, and he spreads us out into new places. And I've been through some painful um, church fractures, and those are just awful. And yet, he spreads the seeds. You know, the people who leave one church or, you know, factions leave and they go to new places and God works through them and he's spreading out his work. Not, I mean, it's not what he initially would have intended it to be with acrimony and like we can't agree and so we're just going to leave this church, but he uses it anyway. I, I, that just thrills me. So when, you know, I love your example about Paul and Barnabas because. Yeah, eventually there is reconciliation, there's forgiveness, there's a new understanding, there's a working together. But even in the um, conflicts, God is at work and he does good things for other people, even in the midst of it. That is another reason why we need these kinds of stories with these kinds of ideas. Instead of fearing these ideas because we think they will come across as preachy, We need these stories to help us work through those issues in the terms of a fantasy world. That is a purpose of fiction. It is discipleship. It is about cultivating our imaginations. And Zach and I have previously discussed and even raised the question about those who feel that they can no longer be Christians or a certain type of Christian or whatever, in part because they think uh, the church done me wrong or the church done my friends wrong or the church has a bad public witness in the age of ex-bad politician. Stories can help us train for those difficult scenarios when believers are disagreeing with one another or abusing their gifts or turning into legalists or turning into another kind of legalist. If we see that in reality, well, if we've already seen that in a story and internalized that idea and practiced, worked through that with our imaginations and not just our rational thought, then in theory, we'll have an immunity to the accusations of, oh no, these bad Christians did this or they enabled abuse or they're looking the other way when their guy did something horrible. What are you going to do about it? You know, it must mean that Jesus can't be trusted. Well, I've already worked through, hopefully, not only biblical nonfiction about the fact that Jesus can be trusted even when his people aren't behaving very well, but I've also worked through that with my imagination, with my colloquial term here, right brain, not just my left brain. I not only know that people will fail you even if Jesus does not, but I feel it because of the stories that I've enjoyed, because of the ways that I've fed my own imagination. And here I see a great opportunity for these stories to fulfill that. And humans have a spiritual element to them. So a novel that looks at mental dilemmas and emotional issues and conflicts or physical challenges, that's fine. But there is more, there's a deeper dimension to every human soul. And as Christians, And as a Christian writer, I love being free to explore that dimension in my story, as well as all of the physical conflict and excitement and all of the emotional issues. I also love inviting God into the story. And it it can be problematic because when he shows up, things change in ways that are less realistic sometimes to our natural brains and our natural world. But he does that. <laughs> he does that in our lives. And so finding ways to convey that in story, it's challenging. It's, it's scary. It's always scary to depict, even subtly, to depict God at work in the story, because I don't want to get it wrong. But then to have readers say, this book changed my life, 
that scene where God did such and such to that character changed how I feel. I'm able to accept God's love better now because that image got through to me. And that was Jesus' parables were images that got through to people. That little lost lamb, everybody went, oh, and then to say, that's how God feels about you. You are that little lost lamb that he will go out for and, and hunt for. So, yeah, to, to create images that can draw people. Um, one of my friends said um, about the Restorer books that they made her love Jesus more. Which is interesting because Jesus isn't mentioned in those books at all. But the analogies, the, the sense of the spiritual journeys of the characters and the way God interacts in, within that world did that for her. And that, that, nothing could make me happier. That's, that's the best thing you could do with the novel. Well, I love that God is showing up in your stories. And uh, like you said, uh, kind of changing things as he sees fit. And that's great that you are open to that. And, you know, we were talking about Paralandra earlier, and I just thought back to this quote where um, Ransom is talking to the, uh, the, the king and the queen, and the, the king is saying, where Maladiel is, there is the center. He is in every place. Not some of him in one place and some in another, but in each place, the whole Maladiel, even in the smallness beyond thought. So I, I love that, that there's nowhere you can go. I mean, Psalm uh, 139, there's nowhere you can go. Where, where can I flee from your spirit? And so even in a novel, you can't flee from God. He's going to show up. He's going to speak to you. He's going to speak through you. You're going to hear his voice because he's everywhere. And so um, I, I love that you have in, intentionally brought him into the story as well. Thank you. Sharon, where can people find out more? about the Dancing Realm series, uh, the Sword of Lyric series, any of your other nonfiction or fiction writings, where can they find you? I have a website, SharonHink.com, and it's H-I-N-C-K. And then I have a Facebook author page, which I occasionally post on, and an Instagram that I occasionally post on, because it's a good authorly thing to do, but I'm not really great with keeping up with all the social media things and interactions. Um, there's a Dancing Realms Facebook group. If people are really excited about the books, you can you have to request to join. It's a closed group. And that's where I will like invite people to reader chat nights and just little fun inside things if, if people are really excited about these types of stories. And then if anybody's going to the Realm Makers Conference this July, I'm going to be teaching there. So come up and say hi. I would love to meet you. And um, I'm so excited to be in person, <laughs> in person. at an event, yes. hugging Yay. people. Yes. And, so. and, and, <laughs> yes. Um, we're, we're all vaccinated here. Uh, we're really, really looking forward to that. We will, of course, include uh, those links to the Facebook group and any of your other social platforms in the show notes for this episode. And Sharon, if you don't mind, uh, we'll actually keep you for just a little bit uh, while Zach and I uh, run over here to our, our next segment. Uh, we, we actually got a, a message uh, from uh, a resident of the far corners of the island uh, about uh, multiple episodes ago. Uh, listener David C., uh, he wrote about episode 56. Uh, Zach ran that one uh, with Elizabeth Wheatley. Which biblical qualities empower strong female characters? Uh, they were exploring a lot of these and a really great episode. You should check that out. And I get to say that now uh, wholeheartedly because I, I don't think I was uh, any part of that episode. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a lengthy feedback here, but here's what he wrote. Quote, greetings, still loving the podcast and what you guys are doing. 
I have a question that relates to your episode about strength and female characters that you did with Elizabeth Wheatley. Recently, I got into a debate with some other Christians online regarding the meaning of Deuteronomy 22.5 that prohibits a woman from wearing a man's clothing and vice versa. The claim was, based on hermeneutics and the meanings of words in the original language, that women are not permitted to be in combat and that it is, to paraphrase one podcaster, an abomination to the Lord for a woman to carry a sword. No doubt this irks me because many of our favorite stories include women who employ swords or other instruments of combat, Wonder Woman, Princess Leia, Eowyn, Mulan, etc. And despite the examples of Deborah and Jael in the Bible, there are arguments that stand that these women don't support a view of women in combat. So my main question, can Christian fans enjoy films and books with warrior women? And can Christian writers create positive, strong, Christ-like female main characters who pick up a sword to do battle, not just self-defense, in a fantasy or fictionalized version of our world, i.e. Hermione Granger, Black Widow? Or are these other Christians correct and creating such characters are abominations to the Lord? End quote. You'll find the link to that episode also in the show notes. And of course, we wanted to bring this up to you because you've worked with more female heroines than we have. Some carry swords, some don't. I notice at least in the first two books, uh, Karya doesn't carry a sword. Uh, her means of, uh, of attacking the wrong are, are different. But I was wondering first, what, what thoughts do you have about, about this feedback, which also touches on the issue of rules and you know standards that christians are supposed to hold and some sure. old testament law it's just it's just perfectly suited okay yes oh good good topic first a disclaimer i haven't dug into the hebrew version of deuteronomy to really dig into what the meaning of that specific verse was and i'm always uneasy when someone pulls a verse out and says this means that you can never have a woman carrying a sword in a in a fictional novel it's like that's not what it says but, you know, not to discount, I haven't dug into, as I said, the Hebrew there. In my sort of lyric series, I have a soccer mom who ends up wielding a sword. Is it a lyric? The sort of lyric, yeah. It's right the, there in the title. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, there. exactly. There's a sword in there. That's a clue. And yeah, so I was inspired to write the story because of the story of Deborah, where God wrote, lifted up a mother in Israel who was already a judge. She was already giving sage advice and counseling and leading and advising the battle commanders. And when God said, go into battle, the commander said, I don't think so. And so she said, then I will lead them and did it. And was the way the story is presented was very affirmed by God in doing that. What came to my mind when when you raised this question, was the armor of God and the sword of the spirit. That. Yes. That we all wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in Christ, there is no slave or free, Greek or Jew, male or female. And I think the global concepts of wielding a sword and then in a story that symbolizes the battle for good and truth and right is not the domain of just men. Yeah, I so I'll, I'll take a crack at this. So first of all, thank you so much, David, for writing us this question. This is a great question, and I'll and what the what makes it great is that it feels like a trap because <laughs> it feels like <laughs> yes, it, it feels like no matter how I answer this, like I'm going to get in trouble somewhere. Well, I'm seeing so, a category error there that I may <laughs> comment on in a moment if you all. Don't. Yeah, I, I think I see it too. So. You know, right away, I feel like on one side of, the, and by the way, David, I'm not, I'm not saying you're trying to trick us or trap us. Like I, I, I think this is a great 
way that you frame this conversation, this question, because this is something that very much we wrestle with because right away we're faced with that word abominate. Well, okay. So first of all, there's, is wearing men's clothing the same as wearing a sword and being in combat? Well, that, that may be a bit of a stretch. So we could just kind of end it right there. But I, I think it is, you know, very quickly, we're, we're getting into this word abomination, which we do see that show up in other places like Leviticus 18. God outlines a number of ways in human sexuality that are abomination. So if we're going to get rid of one abomination, wh- why would we hold on to another one? Like that's part of the trap that I feel. And then the, the other trap I feel is the, the conservative progressive debate over gender roles and, and stuff like that. And so very quickly we could get into that, but look, look, I, th- I think there's the, the debate about how this plays out in the real world, in the church today and how it shows up in a story. And so maybe this is the category area you're, you're thinking Stephen, but you know, fiction is not the real world. There it is. And, and, and so it's okay to have a story where people in a sense, break the rules that we are subject to. And, and they go against scripture because it's not a portrayal of the world. It's a portrayal of a different world. Fiction is an experiment where we get to play around with, well, what if the rules were different? And it's not to say the rules should be different, but what would happen if the rules were different? And a lot of times fiction helps you see, yeah, it's really good that we have those rules in our world. Because look, look what happens when you don't. Uh, now, obviously, some people can can take a fictional story and say, "Oh, yeah, life is so much better without all these rules and these prohibitions that we have in the real world," and, and see how it's better. But I think that people can still look at that and say, you know, e- even though it kind of worked out the same in the story, something rubs me the wrong way. And you know, because what what this question is touching on is how do we feel about women in combat? And you know, I'm I'm from Texas. Texas has a very conservative uh, approach about this. It's a very big debate people are having right now. People have a lot of kind of gut instinct feelings about that. And so even you can look at a story and enjoy it, but, but then you can look at, you know, military recruiting and say, oh, I don't, I don't think I don't like that. Like I personally don't want my daughters to go into combat. One of our daughters we think is going to be a police officer, like a canine officer. And, uh, my wife is like, I really don't want her, you know, in harm's way, but our son wants to be a firefighter and, and we're, we think that's great. And so, you know, again, that gets into kind of your theory about, or, or someone's theory about gender roles, but back to the, the point, you know, we're, what we're talking about is a fictional story that exists in a world that does not exist. So it, it's okay for that made up world to have its own set of rules. One of one of the thoughts I had is David shared kind of being challenged by people about this issue and he wants to just enjoy his stories that have people <laughs> wielding swords. I'm I'm with him on that. Um <laughs> is, is is this a really vital issue right now to decide whether women should battle with swords cuz I don't really know any women who are trying to make the decision about having sword battles. And <laughs> my my daughter took fencing classes, but she's not out doing combat with a sword. And so in a way, it feels, I think you brought it into some real life meaning there, but in a way it, it does feel like a little bit of a trick question that isn't necessarily something we have a practical need to resolve. Well, in, in David's context, he might, I mean, or at least the Christians who talked with him about this online, of course, this is an online debate, so you never see the context. You right. don't know if someone is speaking about this from 
the first church of women with swords. It's just decided to change their name and their entire <laughs> policy on this. And there was a whole battle and they split the church. And like, there could be this whole story out there that we do not know. So the backstory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The tragic backstory. So, so you never know with people online, you know, is this person repeating something that they've heard to sound spiritual or is it a truly personal issue for this person who is saying like, no, women shouldn't have swords. Women should be in combat and not just in reality, but in fiction. But that there, regardless of the backstory of the behind the question that there, Zach, you pointed out the category error. We're talking about fiction versus nonfiction. I personally do not believe that women should fight in a, a military combat situation. Now you could get into questions of should a woman pick up a gun and go into, you know, the village and search out enemy combatants, or can a woman sit in an office far away and steer a drone? Whoa. Now there is yeah. an interesting, you know, what is this about? Right. Is this about protecting the female uh, sex, which is, you know, somehow worthy of special protection. That is definitely a biblical principle what else is going on here? But we're not talking about even the nonfiction position. Like I can oppose the idea of women in combat, but also enjoy stories about Wonder Woman, who is not real. Wonder Woman is not real. She can't hurt you. Therapist, Wonder Woman is not real. She can't hurt you. Uh, but yeah. Wonder Woman was sculpted from clay by Zeus. She has special powers. Her sword, her shield, uh, her tiara, her lasso, they all have meaning. Like, it's right there. This is the lasso of Hestia, the lasso of truth. You know, the sword is the god killer, it's supposedly uh, said in the, in, the, in the first film. Uh, all of these are a little bit closer to that idea in, in Ephesians 6. It's not so much about the sword, but what does it represent? You know, what does she represent as a character? What does Eowyn represent uh, in uh, The Two Towers and The Return of the King? You know, that is uh, from the pen of J.R.R. Tolkien, who presumably also did not like the idea of women in combat. But the idea that Eowyn is there trying to defend her homeland as a shield maiden of Rohan, uh, that has a power and a meaning that you wouldn't have been able to explore in the story if you had stuck rigidly to the real life rule. Women should not be in combat. Women should not carry swords. But then you can ask in a story, well, what if one did? And I think Tolkien shows the nobility, her heroism, and the tragedy all at once. Mm -hmm. uh, she shouldn't yep. have had to be there. Uh, that's kind of the idea that I interpret in uh, the Lord of the Rings story. And, and, the, and story you get to that in the film too. Yes, exactly. The story of Deborah. Exactly. She shouldn't have had to be there. Right, right. Well, I, I love the moment in the film version of Return of the King where uh, it's in the extended version, I think, alone, where Eowyn has fallen. Uh, spoilers alert here, uh, for sure. Spoiler <laughs> alert. Eowyn has fallen, and um, Eomer runs onto the field and is just screaming in anguish. Uh, he doesn't scream first and foremost that his king has fallen. His king was a combatant. His king had the, in a sense, divinely appointed role of defending the homeland, of joining their allies in Gondor. But Eomer sees that his sister Eowyn has fallen, and he is just in absolute anguish, just getting chills just thinking about it. A Carl Urban, you know actor tour de force just nails that moment and it's a special kind of grief not just because a warrior has fallen but his sister a woman right. warrior has fallen and i think that that is appropriate in a story you can still show in fiction that there are differences between men and women whether or not a woman takes up a sword if that's the legitimate concern then i think you can explain that by explaining the purpose of fiction which i think is really the issue it sounds like from this discussion that david had do these folks understand the purpose of fiction uh, yeah. Do they understand the purpose of this debate? Uh, that's really something that Christians need to understand before we throw ourselves into these kinds of secondary issues. Remember for a second that a story is a metaphor. 
Exactly. So, so, so what, how can we learn from Wonder Woman as metaphor? Well, what I love about Wonder Woman, and, and I'm going to specifically point, pick out something that I've seen people argue about in Zack Snyder's Justice League, where Wonder Woman is there in the bank defending this group of school children against these terrorists that are going to blow them all up and shoot everyone. And Wonder Woman fights back and ends up killing all of these terrorists in front of those children. And, and there were some viewers of that movie that they got very upset about that. And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, well, first of all, Wonder Woman is protecting them. Like she saves their lives. And they were the ones that decided to bring this violence. And, and look, they, it, it came back on themselves. But is she doing it to shock the children or traumatize them? No, she's doing it to out of love. Like she uses violence in, as an act of love and protection of others. So then I think about this like, well, okay, the question is not, do I feel comfortable with my wife, you know, fighting terrorists in a bank hostage situation, but how do I see my own wife uh, defending my, my children and other children a, against the attacks from the evil one? And man, I see this all the time. My, my wife will totally step in, in the line of fire, but my wife is very passionate about fighting against scientism. And in, in how mm. uh, kids are getting indoctrinated into this idea, well, if you believe in science, then you can't believe in God. And, and boy, man, if those are fighting words for my wife because she's an honors major in mechanical engineering and a very strong believer. And she's like, that is totally bunk. And so she will absolutely jump into the line of fire and just repel all those bullets to protect our children from those horrible ideas. Wonder Woman is a metaphor for that. And so that's what we can get from it. But um, David, this is a, you've obviously got all of us thinking about this. So this is a great question, David. Thanks for bringing it to us. If you do want to send feedback about this, you can email podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also comment in the show notes at the lorehaven.com slash podcast page for this episode. Reach us on social media as well. Search for Lorehaven on Facebook. We are at Lorehaven on Twitter and at Lorehaven Mag on our increasingly popular Instagram feed. Next on Fantastical Truth, fiction should not preach, many critics say. They may even preach the slogan. But even if excellent Christian-made stories should not preach, does this mean the stories will have no teaching at all? Is preaching the only way we learn? Or don't we also learn through discipleship? That includes, but is not limited to, preachy sermons. With help from Lorehaven writer and that pale host, author L.G. McCary, we will explore how great Christian-made stories do have a purpose, not to preach beyond the fourth wall of the story, but to help disciple our imaginations in Christ. Meanwhile, whether you come from an island with an order that tries to control everything, or from an island where people will simply abuse the gifts of the Maker on their own, make sure that you are connecting with the Maker, that you are seeking out His Word, and you are understanding the purpose of His gifts in His Gospel as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.